Welcome to One, where we'll learn about the one body of Christ, one story at a time. Well, and welcome to another episode of One, uh, this podcast where we get to hear about this one body of Christ, one story at a time. And I'm really thrilled that today my guest is Dr. Mark Strauss, and you're in for a real treat. Uh, Mark is a really accomplished academic, but really unique in that Mark also has a real heart for uh, the church. Not that academics don't, but that he's really uh, demonstrated a facility of being in both worlds and bridging that gap between the academy and the church. And uh, I think today uh, you're in for a real treat uh, hearing from him and uh, his passion and heart for Jesus and for us to really know him deeply. So Mark, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Robert. And it's so good. Uh, you know, it's fun to be able to sit here and talk with you after, you know, so many uh, classes and seminary, sitting there getting to uh, learn from you, and now to have a conversation like this is uh, a lot of fun. It's a joy for me. It's always a joy to be with former students. That's the best part. Well, you know, the uh, for, for folks who don't know, you teach at Bethel uh, Seminary, and uh, you have been with them for how many years? 26 years now, since 1993, wow. part-time, 1994, full-time. So. Quite a while. Quite a while, yeah. Well, let me An give folks career. A, a real quick overview of your um, uh, uh, sort of uh, um, CV, as it were, and where folks can find that information, and then uh, we'll dive into a conversation. Uh, so you want to learn more about Mark, you can find out uh, so many things that he has written uh, and published, uh, both on his personal website, uh, Mark L. Strauss, and that's S-T-R-A-U-S-S, MarkLStrauss.com, as well as the uh, faculty website of Bethel uh, uh, University. And uh, go to the faculty page there. And both of those sites are just a lengthy list of uh, all the things that Mark has published, anywhere from Four Portraits, One Jesus, uh, to distort, uh, Distorting Scripture, uh, about biblical hermeneutics, uh, to... Um, uh, uh, w- the Mark uh, commentary in the Zondervan, uh, Zondervan uh, commentary series, and that's just a sample of uh, many, many things that Mark has written. So I encourage you to go and check those out. Uh, both uh, pastors and lay people will find just a rich uh, number of resources. Um, I've met Mark uh, through Emmanuel Faith Community Church, and Mark's dad uh, was the senior pastor. Uh, Dr. Richard Strauss at Emanuel Faith Community Church in Escondido. And uh, my uh, uh, wife grew up under Mark's dad and his ministry there as the senior pastor. And then um, I had the pleasure of taking classes from Mark at Bethel Seminary. Uh, ultimately, I got my uh, uh, MDiv from Talbot, but Talbot is an hour and a half away from Escondido. Brutal drive. Bethel's 30 minutes away. Uh, so that's an advantage, but also the great advantage of being able to take Greek from Mark. Like, you couldn't get any better. It's for folks to know, Mark is the uh, vice chairman on the Committee on Bible Translation for the NIV, New International uh, Version, so the translation of the Bible, and Mark is the vice uh, chairman of that committee of translation. So who better to take Greek from <laughs> than Mark? And so uh, all the problems I have with Greek are on me, uh, not on you. <laughs> That's, uh, my uh, uh, lack of uh, facility with language is, is fully on me, my friend. Um, but uh, to kind of get us started, I mean, kind of, kind of overview of you and, and just the rich academic career, uh, I'd like to rewind the tape and, and really begin with your spiritual journey. Uh, how you came to faith in Christ. I mean, you're a pastor's kid, and a lot of different stories a lot of times with those. I'd love to start there, Mark. Tell us tell us about how you came to faith in Christ, and maybe sure. some of the point of your, your spiritual journey. Yeah, and um, like many, I was born in a Christian home. You mentioned my father was a pastor, not just my father, but my grandfather was actually a, a pastor for That's a number right. of years, and then a, a traveling conference speaker and writer um, in the biblical world. So 
Um, I was immersed from the earliest days in church, immersed from the earliest days in, in Christianity, particularly conservative. We could call it evangelical today, fundamentalist, maybe even back then Christianity. Um, but it was a, a, a great home. Um, it was a conservative Christian home, but without any of the hypocrisy or, or very little mm. of the hypocrisy we sometimes see. And I think, you know, that you often hear it said that PKs are the worst. And that can often <laughs> be true because um, it's so hard for a pastor ma to maintain the same facade um, mm. at home as in the church, because in church they're exalted on a pedestal. But the people at home know differently. They know the real person. And I think yeah. probably the greatest strength my dad had was his humility. I mean, he was a very gifted teacher and preacher, but his humility, he was the same, really was the same person at home as he was in the pulpit. And so mm. that made a huge difference. I have three brothers and for both myself and my three brothers, it, I think it made a, a huge difference in terms of my upbringing. Mm. But being raised in a Christian home, you do... Uh, learn the lingo. You learn the language, and you learn how to how to say it right, and how what not to say, and um, and so you can kind of play the Christian uh, very easily in that context. And I certainly learned how to play the Christian. There's no doubt about that. But I did come to know Christ at a very early age, um, about five years old. My brother, it was, I think it was at Easter, and and my brother, who's a year older than me, ten and a half months actually made a decision to follow Christ. And I did everything my brother did. I wanted to follow him <laughs> in that. And um, we did everything together. And so I, I accepted Christ. And, and it was a real decision. I have no doubt in my mind um, that I had an authentic relationship with, with God and Jesus Christ from that point on. Um, I had a pretty vibrant prayer life. I mean, I think um, we would pray every evening and I, I did feel the presence of God in my life. So I, I would say, absolutely. I was saved at that, at that time and came into a relationship with, with God through, through his son. Um, as many, I wandered from the faith and, and took my faith for granted uh, throughout much of high school. I would say probably mm -hmm. I was in that state. I, again, I could play the part, never get too bad. Never, never go off the rails too much that you become a distraction um, but um, internally, not not a vibrant faith. I really uh, think I most came back to Christ in college when um, I worked with a Young Life program, a Young Life program um, in Missouri at a place called Silver Dollar City. It was my, really my first real opportunity at Christian service. And I found that through Christian service, through the, uh, the community of Christ, the body of Christ fellowshipping together, really I experienced once again, I think the presence of Christ in a, in a more dynamic way than I had for years and years. And that really brought me back to Christ. Um, I was midway through um, college at that time um, and um, went to, um, finished up at Westmont College, did two years at San Diego State, finished up at Westmont College. Um, I was a psychology major. That was my degree. People okay. said, I'm easy to talk to. You ought to be a counselor. So I, I and wanting to pursue nothing else, really history was my great passion, but I thought huh. you can't really major in something that you love. You have to major in something that's going to be a career. I was a psychology major, but um, was sick of psychology. I had mostly done experimental psych um, during my time in college and was tired of working with rats and decided I wasn't mm. that interested in graduate school of psychology. Uh, so I decided um, to take a year off and just think things through and um, mm. The opportunity came up to take a class in seminary. And so I decided to enroll in Talbot. I figured I hadn't had much Bible, actually any formal training in Bible. And so like you, I went to Talbot uh, Seminary and um, never left. I, I sometimes say I, I started and didn't really feel a calling at the time, but then God um, responded gradually over time. And by the end, I felt like God was calling me to some kind of Christian ministry. I met my wife during that time. I came home midway through seminary and started working as an intern for Dennis Keating in the college ministry at Emmanuel Faith. Did you really? Church. I did that for three and a half years. Yeah. I didn't realize that. My that. first real, real ministry position. So I was his intern for three and a half years. Met my wife, Roxanne, during that time. She had been living in Massachusetts and, and had moved home to where she originally was born in Poway. And uh, she moved home and I met her her at, at the church and we were married in about a year it was a very whirlwind we knew it was right um, and so uh, we, we then um, finished off my 
um, seminary work. I did a, an MDiv at Talbot, then did a THM at Talbot, and began to look at different ministry opportunities. And I did the normal thing where you pursue youth ministries, and I, I mm. interviewed for several positions. Uh, none of them were working out. In fact, they were kind of going disastrously, which was strange because <laughs> I thought, you know, this is something I've done. This was be great ministry. We looked into missions. We actually went on a fact-finding trip with Emmanuel Faith to work with Muslim guest workers in Europe. Um, things were moving positive in that direction. And then God closed that door. Wow. And then God opened the door to academics in just several miraculous ways. I won't go into all the details, but an opportunity to study overseas, to do my PhD overseas at the University of Aberdeen. And a scholarship right. came through for that acceptance. I got accepted into the program. And then I got a teaching position down at what was then Christian Heritage College, San Diego Christian College. And that I had a year of teaching then before going overseas to do my doctoral work. And that was really what confirmed. I loved the teaching and realized that this was really what my passion was. Got the opportunity to teach some at Biola at that time, as well as at Talbot, and then also um, um, at, at uh, San Diego, what is now San Diego Christian College, which was then Christian okay. Heritage at the time. We went over and did doctoral work in Aberdeen, Scotland for four years. Came home, I got a teaching position at Christian Heritage College once again. And then the Bethel position came open in a year. And that was 1993-94. And I started part-time at Bethel in 93 and then full-time at 94. That's my whole life story. There you go. It's all, right it's all in there right there. Yeah. So uh, I didn't realize a couple of pieces there. One, that uh, you had been an intern uh, in the uh, college department uh, with Dennis for three years when you're back at seminary at Talbot. That's cool. I didn't realize that. And then that you did uh, teaching there at uh, Heritage Christian College for a year before going over to Aberdeen, to University of Aberdeen, for your PhD. And so that was really kind of the clincher for you of like, yeah, this this is my calling. Uh, yeah, I really exactly enjoyed right. this. Oh, fascinating. Well, and the connections, it's just fun how God works, because um, when I was at Talbot, uh, uh, two of the guys that were really formative for me were Mike Wilkins and Clint Arnold. And uh, as it turned out, it was uh, you, Mark, and Mike and Clint were really the three guys that were the encouragement for me to go and do a PhD. And, um, and as, it, as I came to learn later, Mike Wilkins was also very uh, influential uh, in your life, uh, that Mike was there at Talbot back when you were at Talbot. In fact, he's, he's still there uh, as emeritus. Um, I'm just curious, like the the with, with Mike Wilkins, kind of mm. the piece there for you. Yeah, well, we have exactly the same mentors in that regard, and and Clint was a huge influence as well. Now, what's interesting is Clint mm. was a big influence before Aberdeen, and Mike was a big influence after Aberdeen. You huh. know, Clint had just returned from Aberdeen, and um, and another key figure there at Talbot was Bing Hunter, who was the dean at the time. And I had him for hermeneutics and he, I was just enthralled by that class. He really, I, I, to be, to be honest, I, I was a, a little um, um, discouraged with Talbot at certain points. I didn't, I felt like in some of my classes, uh, a student would ask a really challenging, really difficult question. And I go, yeah. And the teacher and not all, but a, f a few of the teachers would respond with, well, that's just sort of what we believe, or that's what we believe there. Mm. And I didn't really, they weren't engaging the mind, at least not honestly, the way I, I felt like should be engaged. And the exception to that really, in many ways, was, was um, Bing Hunter um, in hermeneutics. Mm. He really challenged us as Christians to be the best possible academics, the best possible scholars that we we, we could. So if you're, you know, if... Mm. If, if you're in archaeology, you're not just trying to defend the, archa the archaeology of the Bible. You're trying to be the best possible archaeologist, the best possible historian, the best possible linguist, all of these things. And it really inspired me. I, I, would, mm -hmm. I would tape his lectures and then listen to them on that long drive back to, back to Escondido. Um, okay. And so I went to see him and um, he knew my sort of very conservative heritage and almost discouraged me from going on to doctoral studies until I described sort of my passion for what he was teaching. And, and then he encouraged me from that point on. So then I went and saw Clint and we saw Clint and Barbara, his wife, and, and spent some time with them. And they were really encouraging before we went over there. 
But then four years later, I returned. And um, I always credit credit to Mike, my job at Bethel, really, hmm. because um, this is a long story that I'm going to try to keep really, really short. But I had actually okay. applied for the Bethel position two and a half years earlier. The Bethel position in New Testament, the San Diego position, had come open two years earlier, and it was advertising Christian Today. Clinton Barbara had visited us in Scotland. Clinton Barbara Arnold had visited us in Scotland, and Clint pointed this position out. Well, my, my dad had cancer at the time, and I was thinking how great it would be to get a job at Bethel San Diego where I could teach. Um, and I applied and never heard anything, eventually called the dean and was essentially told very nicely, but I was essentially told I didn't have a prayers chance for this <laughs> job. There was no way. I had no qualifications. I had no publications. And so I said, fine, I, I understand there's far better qualified people. Um, and then I finished up my doctoral work over the next two years. Um, but um, what I didn't realize was they had withdrawn the position after that, that they, there was a financial crisis at Bethel. They withdrew the position for two and a half years. So two and a half years later, I come back and I'm living in San Diego now, teaching at Christian Heritage College. Mike Wilkins calls me and he says, look, Bethel has asked me to teach a gospels course. Would you teach half of it with me? So he was driving wow. down from San Clemente once a week and, and didn't want to do it the whole semester if he could avoid it. So he told Bethel, hey, there's this new PhD grad. I can vouch for him. He's taught for me before. Um, how about if he teaches half this Gospels class? So my foot in the door with Bethel came through Mike Wilkins because he was teaching um, an adjunct class, adjunct at Bethel at the time, driving down. So Bethel then asked me to teach Greek that summer because of this opportunity. Wow. So that eventually, with the foot in the door, that eventually resulted in the Bethel position. When the Bethel position came up, I was the one who was there. I was the one who was teaching. I was the, the known quantity. So I have to say that it was Mike Wilkins' opportunity to teach with him that Gospels class uh, way back in 1992-93 uh, uh, that really, really resulted in my position at Bethel's. Is really cool. That is really cool. It was, but I, it's a position I was turned down for. What was really ironic is two and a half years earlier, I had been turned down for the position that eventually I I was given. And and to see that connection, and I kind of learned of that connection that you had to Mike uh, through um, uh, the the uh, uh, Feshrift book right. for Mike that you and John Goodrich edited, and yep. uh, I was grateful that you asked me to write a chapter in that, and to get the chance. Uh, in the presentation uh, to him to hear bits of, of that story and just his influence on you. And yeah. that was the first time I'd heard of, you know, him helping you get that connection of the class and teaching. And um, for for Mike, I had him for an exegetical class uh, for First Peter, uh, translating First Peter. And mm -hmm. then when uh, I was applying, getting ready to apply for a PhD programs, and then uh, got in and uh, Durham, and I asked Mike, I was like, could I do uh, an independent study and you be the one that would oversee it and then allow me to use this uh, to go through um, uh, in depth as preparation for the thesis? Uh, because the element of what I was going to do in the thesis related to Colossians, and let me translate it, go in depth on it. And it was so fun, and just an amazing guy, because he takes us on, and he, I, I would send him, you know, this stuff really in depth, and he would come back each week with just so much in-depth um, mm. perspective, In and, and I'm mm. like, who has the time for this? In the midst of all the responsibility, <laughs> he was like dean, uh, I think, of the school at that point, and... I was just blown away that somebody would take the time, mm. you know, invest like that was a, a huge blessing for me. And that's discipleship, you know, that's that discipleship. Is. And that's the uh, the irony, you know, is yeah. Feshriff is because that's been his life academics is the nature of discipleship. And that's been his life in terms of ministry and yeah. training um, uh, young men and women to, to, to serve in both ministry and in academics. So, yeah, we praise the Lord for, for Mike. And, and that, and you know, I see the connection because one of the things that you know you and I've talked about is your passion for, you know, uh, in-depth uh, uh, study of the mind, right? And, and really exercise your mind as a Christian, right? That you're seeking the truth, and you know, you touched on that with Talbot, and you know, I, I think that influence that you and others have had, you've seen a growth in Talbot because when I was there. Uh, in uh, you know roughly 2003, four, five, something like that, six, seven, because I went over the PhD in 2007. Um, 
overseas, it was a, a different experience in the classes that I took there where there was greater emphasis on digging in and, and, and more like, yeah. okay, what does God's Word said? And that's, for me, why Clint Arnold was such a, a blessing, because I remember once was in a, a class on Ephesians, and we're just translating Ephesians. And, you know, this is what he did his PhD on <laughs> at Aberdeen and, you know, yeah. written on, published on, right? Been studying for 20 years. And we come to this one particular part, and, and he goes, what do you guys think? And I sat there and thought, I think you're supposed to tell us. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and there's this humility of being under God's word and like, we got to mm. wrestle with this. Mm. And then particularly like, uh, too, in translating in First Thessalonians, and there was one, you know, with the um, squelching of the spirit. And he was talking about yeah. gifts of the spirit. And if you're going to be uh, true to the text... You, you can't explain away the work of the Spirit here in sort of gifts of encur- words of encouragement from one believer to another. And that really flies in the face of a, the sense of the Spirit, the, the, the gifts uh, have ceased. And mm. there was just this authenticity of him to go, uh, yeah. I don't care what, you know, longstanding sort of doctrine is over here. Here's the text, and we're mm. under the text. That is and so I good. Thought, yeah. Oh man, like I want to. When I grow up someday, I want to be like that, right? Mm-hmm. And and I saw the same thing with you, Mark. And I so appreciate being able to to take so many classes from you because there was just this digging in, uh, in in like if we're gonna serve the Lord, we need to serve Him with all of our not only heart, right, and strength, but all of our mind. Mm-hmm. And and seeing that from you and and being challenged by you. Uh, you know, in those you know Greek classes, um, I'm really grateful for, mm-hmm. and uh, and on that topic for us. So as as Christians, you know, I think that's uh, a beautiful calling for us because all truth is God's truth, mm-hmm. and so we yes. we never have to shy away from it, right? We just know that if it's true, it's going to be good, and God's going to be behind it. And as you've gone through your academic career, um, kind of talk about that. What are some ways in which you know you challenge students, how you bring that into the church to, to challenge Christians to exercise their mind, and I don't know, just kind of open the door in that discussion with you. Yeah. Like, I know that's a passion of yours. Yeah, and one of the things you just said is so important, and that is allowing the text to set the agenda, mm-hmm. um, because we come to the text, and we, we need to first of all recognize we come from a theological heritage. We come from a particular tradition. And there's going to be a strong inclination for that tradition to determine our exegesis and to determine where we go. And I think so often what we do is we mold the text to shape our preconceptions and our theology. And therefore, we're simply confirming what we believe rather than actually listening to the text. Um, What's interesting is you mentioned the, the perspective of many at Talbot that maybe cessationism isn't biblical in the sense that the Bible doesn't teach that these sign gifts like tongues and so forth, are definitely going to cease. And yet my tradition and Talbot's tradition says they will cease. And it's that's part of our firm tradition. And yet the Bible doesn't really teach that. Well, what, what has changed the perspective of many evangelicals in that regard is, is staying with the text as opposed right. to letting the preconceived theological system determine. Um, and it's it's the influence also of what is bib- what is called biblical theology, of course, which is the idea mm-hmm. that you listen to each particular author within their particular context. Um, there's a you know there's a movement within classical dispensationalism that really now the center has shifted away from classical dispensationalism to progressive dispensationalism or even historical premillennialism. And what has driven that is is by no means a lack of a th- respect for the authority of scripture. To me, in my mind, what has driven that is biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I jokingly used to say, well, Matthew might've been a pretty good dispensationalist, but Luke was a lousy dispensationalist. <laughs> so, you know, now that's almost heresy in some, some context, but, but what we're saying is that Luke has a particular theological perspective yeah. that by no means contradicts Matthew, but doesn't fit within your classical dispensational system. Right. And so we sometimes need to let these systems lie in tension. Systems don't ever work. You know, dispensationalism doesn't work in every passage. 
Neither does covenant theology, you know, the other side of the coin work in every passage. So sometimes we need to let these tensions remain and listen to the text in its context and with reference to what an author is trying to communicate, rather than trying to force them to answer the questions that we want answered and that we want answered in a particular way. So we tend to, you know, accept the easy passages and then explain away the difficult ones instead of really digging in and, and, and listening in those dis- difficult passages. And, and being true to the text, right? That um, there are times when, you, you know, you can make, you know, these arguments from both sides, you know, mm-hmm. use the dispensational or covenant or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the topic would be, and being able to sit in the tension, sit in the mystery to say, I don't have to resolve this. It's okay, right? right? It, it's okay to say, you know, I like the, uh, the term... Um, I uh, heard uh, first from uh, Craig Blomberg of, um, you know, referring to the sovereignty of God and, and you know, you've got uh, this freedom and, and just the sense of, um, you know, kind of it's both. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, the sense of, yeah, he's completely sovereign, and yet well, there's this free will, and there's a mystery here, and, and to, to rest in that and not overemphasize certain right. text, certain scriptures to make sure that we sort of get our way. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the Trinity. Yeah. It's and just it, rest it, does, it does mean living with attention, with a measure of ambiguity. And um, yeah, and, and I think also being, being able to express, and you just hinted at this a moment ago, being able to express your opponent's argument is also really crucial. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, I, I remember when I was teaching in a very conservative context, I heard one of the professors and he said, well, this is what covenant theology says. And he, it was such a, caricature of covenant theology. Mm. I thought that's not at all what a covenant theologian would say. Let me hear you defend covenant theology with the same degree of, mm. of coherence that an advocate of it would. Yes. You know, this relates not only to our theological discussion, it should relate to our political discussion, you know, mm. because so much of politics today is, is caricatures of what the other side says or the extreme of what the other side says. If we, before we ever criticize a position, if we first of all defend it, in other words, present the strongest possible arguments in defense before we criticize it, our criticism is gonna be much more sharp, it's gonna be much more appropriate, it's gonna be much more relevant. That's the challenge is we don't understand the other side or we, we we can't empathize with the other side and so if we can't empathize, we, we don't understand it, and we won't respond appropriately to it. We'll respond with a caricature. We'll respond with absolutes with that, instead of with the, the true nuance that goes into every, every argument, really. Well, there are two key terms there that you use that are just, uh, I think, so salient. One is understanding, and the other is empathy. And to understand, I had a stats professor in the MBA program at the University of Texas, Austin, and and he would say, um, knowing is fun, but getting there is hard, right? But the, but, right? And, and particularly with stats, I'm like, amen, brother. Man, this is brutal. You know? And, and it was exactly it, right? The knowing is fun, but to get into that is hard. Getting mm-hmm. to the knowledge is hard. And so you got to be willing to put in the work. And, and I think that's one of the things that for 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 me because I've I struggle with you know is it is it to be a pastor senior pastor and, and preach <clears throat> or is it a seminary professor right and I've always felt that tension felt sure. back at Baylor when I was called to ministry and and saying go get a PhD and I was like you know and then coming out and is it ministry and and even coming out of University of Durham was that struggle which is it and and part of my passion in teaching preaching is like I feel I am responsible not to give you a fish, but to teach you how to fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, if, if go through and you leave and you feel happy, clappy, whatever, but you can't come back to the text yourself and know why it says this and mm-hmm. dig into it, Yeah. ultimately I've failed, and I'm be held responsible for mm-hmm. it. But that also means that I've got to push on the people in whatever context I'm, I'm preaching, teaching, to be willing to roll up the sleeves. Yeah. Like, do the hard work. Like, if we're going to grow and we're going to have a strong church and be believers that, that are strong, we've got to be able to use our minds and understand it. And that's that word to use of understanding. Mm-hmm. Of we've got to be willing as Christians in the pew to do the hard work and understanding. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and in your work as, as someone who's done and really has a foot in both worlds, um, you see that from your personal website. 
where you've taught at the Church of Rancho Bernardo, and you've gone through all these different uh, uh, biblical books, both Old and New Testament, and you're just walking through teaching people, but you're also doing it in a church setting, yeah. and it's sort of a, a big Sunday school class type setting. How do you do that, Mark? How do you help, and how do you encourage, mm-hmm. how do you push? Yeah. Like like someone who's listening, who's just, you know, uh, they're not in seminary, they're not a pastor, right? To grasp that that necessity, that need to dig in the understanding element, the key well, and, element. And you're in the same you're in the same position because you're an academic who is also in who is in pastoral ministry. So so you've got that same balance. And I just one thing I I, I say to pastors first. I'll start with pastors before I start with like, with sure. you know the congregants. But with pastors, um, I, I always say you know you don't need to teach hermeneutics to teach hermeneutics because mm-hmm. every time you get up to preach you are teaching hermeneutics because you are handling the text in a particular yeah. way. So I say you know I, I'll even say things like you should never say Paul tells us to do this. You should always say Paul tells the Corinthians right. to do this because what are you doing? You're modeling the idea that this is a letter written to them that has application for us. Mm-hmm. And so every time you open a book, every time you say, turn to Philippians, turn to Ephesians, you are modeling hermeneutics. Because you, do you start by saying, this is a letter Paul wrote to the Philippians as re- a response to a, a gift that they've sent. And Paul is so mm-hmm. encouraged by that gift. Every time we mention a New Testament letter, we should mention briefly within a sentence or so, the context of that letter, that this is yeah. a real letter written to real people and that they really are responding in real time, in real life. And, and we can model that simply by the way we present the text. And, mm-hmm. and whatever genre we're teaching, we need to teach what that genre is as, as we teach. So I really think pastors can model hermeneutics just by the way they do it, because that's exactly the way then their Sunday school teachers will learn how to, do t- how to teach the text. Um, if, if, if we always have this immediacy, the text speaks directly to me, then we're not going to model good hermeneutics. And when it comes to the really difficult challenges where people say, well, the Bible says to do this and everyone says, well, we can't do that. That's just not, you know, not, not right. Whether it's an old Testament command or head covering in the new Testament or foot washing or, you know, or some of the ethical issues that are, are plaguing the church right now, people don't know how to do hermeneutics. That's the problem. The challenge is, uh, when we simply say the Bible says it and that's it, they're not doing hermeneutics and and it must not be modeled for them. What's really interesting for me is in my hermeneutics course, um, every semester I hear the same thing from at least some students. I hear students say, I've never heard this before. I've never heard this before. And this wow. is introductory hermeneutics, how to read the Bible and apply it to our lives. And these are people who are training for ministry who felt called to ministry, many of whom have been in the church their whole life. And some of them say they've never heard this stuff about context and about contextualizing a passage and about literary context and historical context, these kinds of things. That tells me that that in some ways we're failing to model hermeneutics from the pulpit. And that so so that's my passion is to encourage pastors to model it in just the way they deal with the text. Well, and it's so important because it's important not only. Well, okay, so I, I've got uh, kids that are in high school, a senior and a freshman, and and my son's getting ready to go off uh, to college next year, and so uh, you know about a year or so ago, you know it just it sort of hits you, and you you've got three kids, and so you you've already experienced this, and you probably know what I'm talking about. Where you're like, wow, this is really soon when they're going to be <laughs> yeah. gone, and it you know. Uh, it's a year and a half away, and it already feels like it's here. And that that sense of uh, immediacy, which has already uh, always been in the back of my mind, of preparing kids, my kids, when they're listening to to me preach, like it's always in my mind: Am I preparing them to engage, like critically with their minds, with with the real world? Like, am I teaching them to be able to understand, like, why is this important? Where does it come from? How does it relate to these different questions? How does it tie together uh, w- with the overall things of, of Scripture, right, old and new? How mm. does it fit with the timeline of history, right, the contextualization, the flow of history? And I, I, I wonder sometimes why, or w- one of the reasons why you, you see a number of youth leaving the church mm. yeah, 
is because we haven't taken that seriously. Right. Like we've approached it from an experiential, I say we in a broad sense of just evangelical church, of we've approached it from a sense of, you know, does it play well with the crowds versus a question, does it feed the crowd in a way that they can be able to critically engage the world from a, from a position of this is God's word yeah. and it can stand up uh, to critical thinking. And I'm armed and equipped to engage the world in a serious manner, not a private religious experience, but in a robust right way for all aspects of life and society yeah. and culture. And that's why I think your work is so important, Mark, with hermeneutics, you know, that term people go, what does that mean? Like, well, okay, how do you uh, interpret the Bible? And how do you do it in a way that's sophisticated and nuanced and in-depth? Um, so as you've engaged in this now for a couple of decades, um, what's your perspective going forward uh, in, in terms of church and, and, and Christians in the pew, people coming into seminary? Do, do you mm. see it the same way you did 20 years ago mm. in terms of the students that are coming in and in terms of the... Uh, I'll, I'll use a metaphor, the sea that they're going to be sailing in. Mm. You're right. Right? Right. Uh, because when I look at the sea that we're going in, it, it's really changed dramatically. Yeah. I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I think I would say, though, that the difference now is that the diversity, um, and I mean diversity in its broadest sense there, is that um, back when I started teaching, probably most seminary students were coming from a fairly narrow context in terms of most of them church background or else had been believers for a period of time. Uh, most, most of them had a, a pretty solid knowledge of biblical content, at least. Uh, now we get everything from those students. I have some, I have some of my best students ever in, in recent years. So I would, I would say that the top in terms of quality in terms of knowledge, in terms of experience, um, is still there. But there is this huge diversity where you've got many coming in from unchurched backgrounds uh, with very little knowledge of, of the Bible. Um, you can come into seminary with a you know, bachelor's degree in, in virtually anything. And so some have biblical training, some don't. Uh, that can be a strength not to, in some ways, to you look at text fresh. But I think probably where do we start? with a student in, in, in a class like hermeneutics or New Testament survey or Old Testament survey, where do you start? Um, how much knowledge do you, do you assume these students are going to have? Because some are going to be playing catch up the whole time. Others are already going to have had classes or similar classes in Bible college or in Christian liberal arts colleges. Mm -hmm. So I think that diversity is a, is a challenge we face. Um, and that reinforces one thing that we should always have been doing. And that is that the way you said it earlier, not just giving people fish, but teaching people how to fish. In other words, teaching them to handle the text becomes so much more important in a context where you can't give them all the content. You simply don't have the time to do that. You've got yeah. to tell them how to approach the text so that this you're launching them on a lifelong journey of studying and applying and, and, and reading, studying and applying the text to their lives and in their teaching ministries. So I think teaching how to do it becomes all the more important in that, in that context, in the context of the diversity we see. So you're learning how to learn. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And learning to love learning too, you know, being a, being a lifelong student, a lifelong learner, um, yeah. And, and you said, where's the kind of the direction? Um, for me, this, this issue of critical thinking has become a passion mm. of mine. I've even mm. thought about writing it on it outside the realm of biblical studies, just because oh. it's so much a part of our political um, situation in the country today. And if I start to digress, you're going to have to pull me back right here. But, <laughs> okay. but if, you, if you look at the popular media today, uh, the, the so-called news channels, which are really commentary channels, at least in the evening, they're commentary channels. Yeah. They, are, they are in different worlds. They're living in different universes. Um, if you just if you were to switch over from, let's say, Fox News in the evening to um, MSNBC in the evening, you you would think that you are living in a different country. They're talking about different issues. 
Um, they're, they're seeing the entire political mm -hmm. landscape from an entirely different perspective. And, um, and what we find is people listen only to one side. That's become the norm these days. Yeah. And therefore, for me, that's a complete loss of the ability to, to think critically. And it's a, you know, it's a, cha it's a challenge in the church. It's a challenge in society. And I think one of the reasons we're so divided into two parts, two halves in this country, is because both sides have failed to learn or to teach um, the value of critical critical thinking. And that's a huge gap in our society today and needs to be mm -hmm. um, remedied in, in some way or another. And it comes about listening to the other side. It, it comes about mm -hmm. by being able to articulate the strengths of the other side that, that just doesn't happen in our in our culture today. It's about you know caricatures. Um, it's about at speaking in terms of absolutes. So sorry, see, I'm getting on a soapbox. No, I, I think it's absolutely um, salient to what we're talking about, and, and I'm glad you'd bring that up, Mark. I really do because um, so you're probably familiar with uh, uh, a scholar Jonathan Haidt, H A I D T, uh, who's a uh, um, uh, at uh, NYU and for the University of Virginia and wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And not a believer um, um, uh, by any means, uh, but th his, his work uh, is, is really powerful because it talks about, you know, how do we come about knowing? And, and part of, you know, his work in this Righteous Mind talks about we have an inclination to um, reject those things that go against our presupposition, these subconscious sort of things mm -hmm. we already hold to. And um, uh, uses the metaphor of sort of a rider on an elephant, and it's a sense of, uh, you know, the, um, uh, uh, you know, what's really guiding us. And we think, oh, we're completely doing it, but it, it, it requires for us a lot of hard work to be able to direct our mind in areas that we may disagree with because there's so many elements going on that are pushing us just to continue further down a path that we just would blindly follow. Mm -hmm. And um, couple that with, I think, the environment we're in now with social media and online, right, that it creates filter bubbles, uh, whether it's through Twitter or through Facebook or what have you, exactly. where we are... Uh, have the potential to only hear those voices that are exactly like ours, mm -hmm. which reinforce our presuppositions. We already have, because of, I think, of our sin nature, like from a biblical perspective, a sin nature that would um, resist uh, uh, something that we don't like, something that we disagree with, and so we're already inclined not to, to entertain other ideas. Then, through filter bubbles, we're only hearing from people that are just like us and reinforcing <laughs> yeah. it ramping up the, the, you know, those ideas. And so it creates a further and further divide. Mm -hmm. And I think from a, from a church perspective, uh, that's quite dangerous because the body of Christ is one in which there's diversity, and if we're going to have healthy body, then Christians should be at the forefront of modeling how to dialogue with those with whom we may have disagreements, yeah. particularly in the church, mm -hmm. and to do so from the the most cutting edge uh, uh, analytical tools, because these are God's gifts to us, mm. and by doing that, it actually fosters unity in the body. So write the book. <laughs> I encourage you right now. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah. Right, because I think that's so critical that yeah. we would have those those skills um, to overcome our. Uh, our predispositions not to listen to yeah, those, yeah. right, that, that we agree with or disagree with. Um, and that it has huge implications for our spiritual life. It has huge implications for our social life. It's it, All facets of, of, of our life need that balance between heart and mind, and, and absolutely. Well, I was having a, a conversation with um, a, a pastor who just retired. His name is Charlie Drew. Uh, from Emanuel Presbyterian uh, uh, up in New York, just the, the church planted 20 years ago through Tim Keller's uh, church planning network across the street from Columbia. And um, 
he'd written a book. I'm trying to find out here on my um, Surprised by Community is the name of the mm. book. Surprised by Community: Republicans and Democrats in the same pew. Ah. And um, just absolutely lovely guy. Um, just you know, lovely man, but also one who is really modeled um, critical thinking. Right, that very thing. That very thing, and it, and has put that in place over the past couple of decades, both at church in Long Island and then there at uh, Emanuel Presbyterian in in New York City, of how do we go about engaging Christians who may come from different political perspectives yeah. in constructive dialogue. So that we can understand, and I'm gonna go back to what I said a minute ago to emphasize two words you used, right? Was understanding and empathy, mm-hmm. and I think you nailed it. And that was one of the elements that he brings out in this mm-hmm. book, "Surprised by Community." Is the only way we're gonna have empathy for someone is if we're able to understand them, right? You know, that's exactly uh, right. Yeah, to to engage in that. So, in your work, um, uh, you know, through uh, academics, um. How how could you like for for people in the pew? What would you encourage steps for folks to take? Like practically, how, how do they d- develop those tools? If somebody goes, you know, I I feel I, I would like to grow in this area right. of understanding and being able to have empathy. Right. Practically, what are some things you could do from a from a Christian yeah. perspective? Yeah, you know, there are lots of opportunities for this. One of the easiest ways to do it is is choose a topic where you have a view on, and then there are so many multiple views books on that topic. You know, if you want to mm. hear the best possible arguments, get a three views. Some people hate these things, the three views, because they come through more. They would say more confused than ever. Well, they come through <laughs> confused because they were so set in their ways. Now they've had that shaken up. They need to move from confusion to understanding. You know, the confusion comes because they've just heard someone articulate a view they thought was nonsense in a Mm. clear and cogent way. And and that brings confusion. But confusion is just one step on the way to true understanding. And when we hold just one side, and when we know just one side, we have no understanding. We just, we think we do. And there's the, that's the other thing is humility is another huge Mm. characteristic in this is, is recognizing that I can't possibly be right, 100% right on this or any issue, which means I have things to learn, Um, things to learn from my opponents. That's, people don't think of it that way. They don't think of it in terms of what Mm. can I learn? Um, So um, we were, occasionally we make a mistake by posting something political on Facebook and get into it with someone, usually a a relative or or a friend. And at one point um, I said, okay, um, what have you learned from that person? And I said, this is what I've learned from you. And I listed four things that that I, Mm. you know, and I, I, I would have just, at the beginning of that argument, I would have just said, you're completely wrong. But then by the end of it, I said, I've learned these four things. What have you learned from my side, you know, from those who've argued from my side? And that's a challenge for people to, to actually, and it's amazing wow. how that diffused that particular situation because to stop and say, okay, I think you're wrong in the end, but you know, this, 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 and this are really good points that I had not considered enough. And there you are moving towards understanding. So I, I think, you know, asking the question, what can I learn from this? You know, one of the buzzwords today in the Christian world, as well as in right-wing politics, is critical race theory. You know, critical race theory mm-hmm. is this term that's being used. And once we, once we have a label, we don't need to deal with the arguments. Because once we have a label, that's bad and what I believe is good. So all I need to say is, well, that sounds like critical race theory, and the argument ends. Okay, so what I would say is tell me what are the four of the great strengths of critical race theory before you criticize, you know, you know, this. And until someone can do that, I don't even want to hear them criticize it because it means they've really know nothing about it or know very little about it. So that's just taking one term that but we we label people, we label people. Once Mm -hmm. you label someone, you don't have to deal with the arguments. You don't have to deal with the critical thinking. Because you've reduced it to, to an yeah. element that you've already a straw man argument he, to, to, to chop it out. dismissed it, yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Labels can easily be dismissed, and that's why calling names and giving labels are the most unhelpful thing we can possibly do f- towards dialogue. Well, you, w- w- 
you just said there, um, that's a great confusion is a necessary step to understanding. I love <laughs> that. Yeah. I love that. That's so great because I think that's that's one of the frustrating parts that anybody experiences, right? When you're pushed out of your comfort zone, right, and then right. you get to a place of like, well, this doesn't make sense, and the natural inclination is, well, I'm going to retreat to what is safe and comfortable, right? My tribe mm-hmm. and and the things that I understand, and and so I'm just going to stay hunkered down in my bunker. I'm happy here intellectually and maybe even literally. Uh, the people I associate with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Socially, so not only, yeah. yeah, socially too, intellectually and socially. And instead, like, okay, being uncomfortable and confusion are healthy steps towards understanding. Absolutely. Both intellectually mm-hmm. and socially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And it's yeah. a necessary step towards yeah. empathy. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And, this, and the practical question that you gave for us there is do I understand, can I articulate the, the major points of, of that Defend perspective? Defend it with its strengths. Absolutely, yeah. Defend give me, it. And give that's me even four better. major strengths of that. And, and that's, you know, that, that's how you articulate. You articulate something by saying why, mm. this, you know, why this is such a great idea. Um, you know, why, why is affirmative action such a great idea? Why is a border wall, we'll take the other side, right? Why is a yeah. border wall a good idea? You know, ask as a, if I were a Democrat, I, I should be able to answer that question. Why a border wall is a good idea. And on the other side, why affirmative action is a good idea or open borders is a good idea. You know, if you can't defend that, you don't even understand where the other person mm. is coming from. That is really <laughs> powerful. And, and you, also, I think uh, an element of that of the empathy. Mm. And I think this is really, really uh, so important for Christians is to view that person you're dialoguing with, how would Jesus look at them? Mm-hmm. In, in other words, in the sense of, um, this isn't my enemy. No, no matter what it is, this isn't my enemy. right? This is someone that ultimately, I could win an argument mm-hmm. and, 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 and lose the greater good, which is that I would have modeled the gospel in such a way that that person is going to experience the grace of God. Mm. So true, yeah. And, man, I just, I see in a greater, greater and greater as the polarization increases, the, the opportunity, frame it positively, the opportunity for Christians to model um, graciousness. Mm. Yep, yep. Yeah, winning isn't one of the fruit of the spirits. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. I mean, ask a, a, a bombastic Christian leader who's just proclaiming his view on a particular mm. topic. Um, ask how much of that is coming from the fruit of the spirit uh, and how yeah. much is coming from a desire simply to, to win. Oh, that's well said, right? And at the end of the day, you know, when they win that argument, may crush somebody, whatever. But if they turn around and and, and and there's not a relationship, there's not an opportunity for further dialogue, and there's not, and we haven't paved a path that they could walk towards Jesus, mm-hmm. then then we've we blown it. Amen. Amen. Right. I mean, the First Corinthians thirteen, the greatest of these faith, hope, right, is love. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and love is very practical. It. It's self-control, it protects, it perseveres, it has faith, right? It keeps no record of wrongs. <laughs> oh, kind of bring that one up, Mark. Come on. Know, that's, that's, our, little... that's our greatest strength, weapon. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps no record of wrongs. Now, that's just getting just too hard. Come on. <laughs> Don't make this practical. Confusion. <laughs> it's on the way to understanding, though. This, uh, you know. <laughs> That is so good. And, and that's the, I think, the beauty of, of your work, of bridging that gap between the two um, of the pulpit and being a professor and in, and in the pew. And even in your work, go from, you know, a commentary, you know, uh, with Greek diagrams and the whole lot, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and Mark and Zondervan to, you know, the three, four perspectives books you were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, through Zondervan. Um, and, and all the way through this various levels, um, as you look 
down the road uh, for you. You mentioned mm -hmm. writing something mm -hmm. on critical thinking. Mm -hmm. What other things are, are you passionate yeah. about and, 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 and wanting to engage in right now? Yeah, that's a great question. I um, a couple things in the works. I'm doing writing a critical introduction to Mark's gospel. I've done so much on Mark, and Zondervan is doing a critical introduction series. So that'll be the the most technical work that I will have produced in ages. Oh. Um, certainly oh. since the commentary and before that, since the um, my dissertation. Um, so that's in the works. Hope hope to finish that by next year. I'm um, writing a, a full blown hermeneutics textbook. Um, as well with together with a colleague and that I'm excited about that. That's just in the early stages. Um, I'm writing a, um, a part of a new uh, survey series. I'm writing a Pauline theology as well. It, well, it's a Paul, it's a Acts and Paul. It's that section of the New Testament and it's a okay. short introduction series. There's one on the gospels, one on Acts and Paul, uh, one on Hebrews through Revelation um, and um, and then there's an Old Testament set as well. So they're 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 short introductions. Um, that those are all in the works down the road. But but really, one of my great and we haven't even touched on this. But one of my great passions. And really, if I were to if you were to say you know what academic mark have made I made it? It's not real big because um, my um, my work has mostly been popularizing, clarifying, simplifying technical work. I mean, I really, mm. building that bridge has been my primary work. Uh, the one area where I have broken to a measure of new ground is in Bible translation. What I've yeah. done in that has been um, not really done by many evangelical scholars. And so I've, I've talked to several publishers about writing a full-blown um, linguistics and Bible translation sort of, it would be a textbook, but it would be at the upper level kind of a, of a textbook. So um, I keep saying I'm going to do this, but I, I hope to spend the last decade or so of my academic life in the area that, that really allowed me to break into the academic world. And that was translation. My first book was on translation. It, it brought about most of my other publishing opportunities came about one way or another through that book. And so returning to my first love is, is one of the big mm -hmm. things I really want to do um, as I close out, if you will, my my academic career in terms of writing and, and research. Um, whether that will happen or not, I don't know, but that's sort of where I want to go with it. It's one area that I find fairly easy because I hmm. that's why I've made the minor breakthroughs that I've done and, and something that is passionate as well. So easy, yeah, I mean, I... I think well in that area for some reason. You had me in Greek, so you got you heard all the, yeah. the Straussisms over and over again. Um, in, in that, Absolutely, in those yeah. That's the area where I I I most I swim best. Uh, well, your passion for it comes through, and just you know, once sitting, you know, in your Greek classes, you know, the passion comes through, which is so delightful, you know, to be in those with you. And I've had you know classes you know, at all levels where, you know, if you have a professor and it, it's not a passion, it's really painful. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's really yeah. painful. Um, and, and with you, it's just such a passion, you know, uh, and so deeply engaged in it. The, the book that you're, you're referring to, the first one that you say kind of set your publishing, uh, mm -hmm. in, in, which one is that? It's distorting scripture. It's distorting. It's, oh, yep. It's, yeah, the question. It's a question. Um, distorting scripture: the challenge of Bible translation and gender accuracy. Um, and it was the most controversial book I've ever written. There it is. Yeah, I had um, that within reaching distance. Who knew? Right? So <laughs> I'm amazed. Go. Yeah, yeah, right and there. that um, you know, this is a hyper exaggeration, but that put me on the map in the sense that it it raised mm. my level of exposure because to challenge people like Wayne Grudem and Vern Poitras on an issue and just say they are flat out wrong. And then to have Don mm. Carson come along and write a book saying the same thing you did, that was the biggest benefit um, to that. And that, and I have to say that that book really opened up the other opportunities I, I've been given, most of the other opportunities I've been given. Um, mm. I think it led to my um, appointment on the NIV committee. Um, it led to the gospels textbook in an indirect way, which has been my most successful writing project. The and four so, portraits, yeah, one Jesus? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Because it's in its second edition, correct? Yeah, it's in second second edition. Um, it's been very well received, and really, that's another story. But that came about um, from an elevator conversation with a Zondervan publisher after I gave my first paper that led to the book Distorting Scripture. So, it, the conversation really? began right when that book was getting ready to come out, and I was just presenting the arguments for it. And it came about because someone was present in the seminar that I gave those ideas. And so that led to the four portraits. So yeah, I, I can trace a lot of things back to that. Back to that. Well, I remember um, you, uh, I was in a third or fourth Greek class with you, Mark, and you were preparing a paper where you were actually responding to some arguments. Uh, I believe it was um, in relation to the TNIV. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, presenting that at ETS, and so we got to listen to an advanced uh, copy, early <laughs> copy, of of that paper yeah. in that class. And uh, if you remember, Jim Many, a uh, good friend, best friend of mine, sure. was in that class with me, and we were both were just like, "Oh man, that was so fun! Like, oh, <laughs> how cool is this? You know, well, and just enjoying it because you're sitting at the edge, really, the the cutting edge of translation." theory and the debates that are, you know, we're raging of, um, you know, use of uh, uh, language and, you know, what is appropriate and what is tradition and what is the text and and how to bring out meaning, you know, functional, you know, versus literal and, you know, boy, so thank you for letting me sit, you know, sort of front row <laughs> seat with that, man. Well, here's an interesting connection to all that. If you look at the cover story of Christianity Today, January, February of this year, 2021, there's right. an article by Jordan Munson in it. Take a look at that article because he okay. quotes me and then um, it's it's about translation and it's about the challenges translators face. And it's it, mm. it quotes a number of people, but it deals with that TNIV controversy. And at one point, at least on the online version, it has a link to that article you're referring to, the TNIV debate really? with Vern Poitras, as well as other articles related to translation over the years. But it's got a link, when you mention that, it's got a link to that very one. So it's in in this, it, it's it's the cover story is out now in the in the newsletter. It came out in the newsletter, but it's okay. uh, it's on Bible translation. And it's it's a fascinating article because it talks about translation and how, you know, how political things can get and how it's, mm. Um, the issue of of balance between a traditional rendering and and what is most accurate or cutting edge, um, it's 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 really interesting. Uh, um, but it, it's funny because it refers back to that. It refers back to several of these other translation debates that have happened over the years. Back, yeah, because that was around uh, two thousand five or so. Yep, yep, that's uh, exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, it's it's funny because I'm scrolling, I'm reading through the article, and I get to the end, and there's the picture of the cover story of the TNIV debate, um, and I said, "What? It's <laughs> so funny." Wow, that's so cool. And again, so for people to track that down, how would they track down this article? Well, it's in Christianity, if Christianity Day Online right now, the new oh, okay. article um, is, okay. and it's the it's the cover story of the January February 2021 issue. Of Christianity oh. Day. I haven't gotten a print copy yet. It came to me through a, I'm, I'm on the Christianity Day newsletter. It came to me as the newsletter. So I, okay. I would think if you went to the Christianity Today website, it would be on there. Um, the article would actually be on there. Um, and I think you can read at least one article without having to pay the subscription fee. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I have to check that out and encourage everybody else to do so, because that sounds fascinating. And man, I just uh, appreciate you. You have been an encouragement to me and a mentor for me. I mean, you were one of the encouraged me to go overseas and, and recommendations to go overseas and pursue, um, you know, further studies in the PhD. But even more than that, just the way you've modeled, Mark, um, of how to be somebody who engages Scripture with all your mind and to do it at a, a very high level and to still do that humbly. Um, I, I sort of you know, think of the, you know, the, the Trinity for me, and it's Mike Wilkins and Clint Arnold and Mark Strauss. So, you know, not to be a heretic, so I'll, right. I'll back off the analogy. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> understand. Mentor. But I just appreciate you. Yeah, I appreciate you very much. Well, as John says in his little letter, I have no greater joy than to know my children are walking in the truth. And so mm. this is why I came into this field is people like you, um, people I've been able to work with and mentor and learn from. 
as well. So it's this to see you in this role, for example, is just an incredible, incredible joy and very rewarding and encouraging. So I just I just appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Well, we look forward to uh, further publications that you'll put out. And, and again, just encourage everyone uh, to go and uh, um, learn about all the wonderful resources that Mark has developed over the years. And you can find that at his personal website. Probably the easiest would be marklstrauss.com, but also at the Bethel uh, University. Their faculty webpage has a, a long list of for books and articles and presentations uh, that Mark has had uh, and engaged in. So, Mark, again, thank you for being on the podcast, my friend. Been a joy, Robert. Thanks. Wonderful. Well, thanks, friends, for joining us uh, here on One, where we get to hear these uh, one stories uh, from this one body of Christ. And um, once again, it's just a joy to do so, because we see the diversity of the body of Christ, and we also find that God is at work in each and every person, wherever you're at, whether you are a university professor uh, or you are at home uh, with your kids uh, or in an office somewhere, wherever you're at. Uh, if you're following Jesus, God's called you, and your story is significant because God's at work using you where you're at uh, to help people to understand this gospel message. So until next time, 